0: Here we go!
1: Neutron proton mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, track, your radium, if you're always your molecule molecules spontaneous combustion. Pow!
0: Law of death, proportion gain. Ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff, and I'm here with a fellow scientist.
1: Thanks for having me, Regina. My name is Tim Kowalczyk. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in the chemistry department. At Western, I'm also affiliated with the Institute for Energy Studies and the Advanced Materials Science and Engineering Center, AMSEC.
0: So I watched a short video that Western actually made of you, and you were talking about the differences between like, the fuels most people think about and the fuels that you're dealing with. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about solar thermal fuels, what are you actually mm-hmm. talking about?
1: Right. The terminology is something that my field has kind of clung onto despite the fact that it's pretty ambiguous, right? Solar, thermal, and fuel. Okay. okay. <laughs> so let's let's piece those together. So the solar thermal part refers to the fact that we're taking energy from the sun and converting it into thermal energy, ultimately. So that's like radiant energy from the sun, like electromagnetic radiation, into thermal energy. The interesting thing here is that we're sort of pressing pause on that conversion process by storing the energy for some period of time in the form of a liquid or thin film fuel. So what we're interested in here is having something that could be potentially a drop-in replacement for some kinds of fuel applications. So we have a lot of devices and technologies that rely on flowing a liquid fuel. And if you can replace the, the ingredients of that fuel, which are typically, you know, extracted from the earth, right, fossil fuels, um, and then when we burn them, we um, completely re-alter the chemical structure and release carbon dioxide, which we know is c- contributing to anthropogenic climate change. So if we want to have a fuel that operates in a similar manner, but doesn't emit carbon dioxide, we either need to kind of close that cycle with, and that's the the approach of biofuels, where you are directly using CO2 from the atmosphere to produce things like that are analogous to fossil fuels, so the same chemicals but not extracted from the Earth, or you could do something analogous to the solar thermal fuel concept, which is to design specific molecules that absorb light from the sun and get twisted or reconfigured into a new shape that's like a strained shape. And that strained shape stores the energy from the sun. And then when you want to release that energy, you can release it as heat, either by running the fuel over a catalyst or gently heating it, and it will release even more heat.
0: So I'm going to break down both two things here. You said anthropogenic. And what you mean is human, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's I, I really liked there's a podcast that was on our show very briefly, and it's... Um, Anthropocene or something like yeah. The Anthropocene
1: a, is the new right. era of geological time right. Because it's like a human era, right?
0: Yeah. So I, I think that that's really interesting. But the second thing I wanted to bring up is you're talking about this is very new, right? Because when people are talking about solar cells, when people talk about solar energy, they're really talking about battery storage, mm-hmm. you know. And and so when you're talking about a fuel that is not the same thing. So I, I, again, I'll bring up this video that will link to our website. Um, and to our social media, but you're talking about this idea that you have fuel, liquid fuel that we use for our cars, for our planes, all that kind of stuff. And then we have these batteries that we have. And a lot of that battery storage is not super efficient. And that's when you're getting all this energy from the sun on your you know house's solar panels. It's good, and you can put that back into the grid, but actually storing that is quite difficult.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's inefficiencies associated with the reconversion of energy from solar to electricity and then back to thermal, right? So um, electrical resistive heating is not a particularly efficient process. And so if you can instead store the solar energy and convert it directly from solar to chemical to thermal without ever going through an electrical Process, Yeah, yeah. An, an electrical stage right. in the process, then that, that could enhance efficiency and would be more appropriate or suitable for some applications than others. So we see solar thermal fuels as being sort of a part of a larger portfolio of renewable solutions, right. in particular contributing in places where battery solutions alone can't quite cut it without significant inefficiencies, like in um, local heating applications.
0: Right, so I'm, what I want to do is I want to come back to that. I'm going to put it on pause where we're going to co- come back to exactly what you're doing in your lab and what does it look like and like how do you use it. I ask all of my guests about kind of their background and how they got into science because I I want this show to kind of humanize scientists. Um, I think we're talking about these solar thermal cells. We're talking about you know energy conversion and these are very heady things, but you are still a human being who was a child once. So mm-hmm. when did you first start <laughs> wanting to get into science?
1: So I was not particularly like the kind of child explorer, the scientist by the, the the sort of stereotypical break things and see what happens and, you know, go chasing around insects and this kind of thing that that stereotype doesn't describe me very well. My childhood was in terms of the interests that I engaged in my childhood was a mixture of video games and music, mostly. <laughs> that is,
0: well, there is a lot of science in just those two things that you're talking
1: about. Yeah, and music. Uh, so, video game music composition was a, a career choice that I very seriously considered before realizing how small the app, the the sort of um, pool of <laughs> yeah. Uh, of yeah potential jobs in that area is. Yeah. So. Um, really,
0: did you make any video game music? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I love that stuff. I need to hear stuff. this later.
0: Yeah. Okay, so, you, so you're into video games, which is, I mean, I was too as a mm-hmm. kid, and I, but I think that this idea of being really curious and problem-solving, I, I did a lot of RPG games, you know, where you have to solve puzzles and you go on a journey and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, I, and I think music in itself kind of has this kind of foundation of being a scientist, in my mind, right? You're You're putting stuff together, mm-hmm. you're composing things, you're... Asking why this is sounds this way or does this, you know?
1: Yeah, I was all about yeah music theory and like ear training. Those <laughs> those two aspects, just yeah, love that stuff.
0: So and then what happened? Like, how did you get into <laughs> chemistry?
1: Yeah, so I, I was really interested in the, in sort of music theory and and um, ear training and, and jazz and all of those kinds of things. I was also thinking that I wanted to, you know, keep myself kind of competitive for. Um, STEM-related careers because it it seemed like a a more viable, you know, direction in terms of a job market and things like that. So, like, like science
0: was your, like, plan B?
1: I don't know if it was ever (laughs) formally a plan B. I think I kind of went to college undecided about whether I wanted to pursue science and math exclusively Mm -hmm. or do something that was at the interface of math, science, and music. Um,
0: So you get a math degree. Are you, did you also get a physics degree because you were saying you took upper division physics or was that just part of your chemistry? So
1: I got it right. I got a chemistry and math degree and uh, I was just taking all of my sort of open holes in my schedule. I was filling with uh, the intermediate mechanics and E&M and ultimately just for kicks taking the galaxies and cosmology class, which is <laughs> one of the most fun classes I've well
0: I mean, taken as an undergrad. not all physics majors take those, right? So, like, mm-hmm. you're a chemist who actually probably knows more about astronomy than some physicists. Um, but so you're like, you're kind of like a physical chemist as you left. That's right. right. Okay. Yeah. So you 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 leave there. You still love music, but you go off to grad school, <laughs> right? Because you think that that's what you're supposed to do. Well, so well, so <laughs> or what, why? Yeah, let's. What happened?
1: Yeah, let's dig into that a bit because yeah. uh, it the decision to go into grad school was not as sort of. I guess I don't feel like I was stepping into the void as much as okay. as it might might appear. So um, <laughs> at the end of sophomore year, I started applying to REU programs, um, oh, okay. research experience for undergraduates. It's a National Science Foundation program um, where undergraduates at um, institutions across the country can go to conduct summer research experiences at, at other universities.
0: You get in, I'm assuming, into one of these REUs, and, right. so and it's helped solidify, like, I want to be a scientist.
1: A couple of different things there. I was very fortunate to get um, accepted to a program that had a couple of theoretical chemists on the mm. team, so Diego Troya and T. Daniel Crawford at Virginia Tech. So I actually did do a second REU the year after. Um, I would say rather than solidifying my passion for computational chemistry, it solidified my hesitance and distaste over experimental chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> second one. The second one. Got it. There was a lab expl- There was an explosion in the lab uh, in my what? second to last week. A postdoc left a uh, sealed vessel uh, under heat, oh my uh, gosh. and I was the only person in the room. What? Uh, when I realized <laughs> that there might be a problem in the hood next to me, and I managed to diagnosed the fact that I couldn't fix the problem and, um, and left the room and as I was leaving it exploded and all the glass in the room was shattered. So so that was the effective end of my experimental right. chemistry. Do you
0: think that your hesitation career? into experimental <laughs> chemistry could have been your trauma from the explosion a little bit?
1: I had already decided earlier <laughs> in the REU that that theory and computation was the direction I wanted to go. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I I think that's an important lesson. I think if there's any um, students that are listening to this podcast or our show, to not assume that every single event or every single experience you have in the sciences has to be 100% awesome. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, then you're not a scientist. I think that that, Mm -hmm. a lot of my students fall into that problem where they're like, well, I don't really love this class so that maybe I shouldn't be a major in this major. Right. Just because you don't like this one class out of the 10 classes does not mean that you shouldn't, don't belong here or you don't get this material.
1: That's right. If I hadn't, if I had sort of given up and switched over to, say, strictly math or math and physics rather than taking the organic chemistry sequence, I never would have found an interest in theoretical chemistry and ultimately to um, how light interacts with matter, which is really the what you're doing crux now? of what I do now. Right. So.
0: Yeah. Um, and. I think that's really important. It is important to know what you don't like.
1: Right. The other lesson that I that I hope anyone uh, who might be a, a student or earlier stage science interested uh, individual um, hearing about my experience with the lab explosion. I hope the other lesson you take from it is to ask lots of questions because yeah. <laughs> because. Um, I'm not sure in that situation if there was really an opportunity to like an easy opportunity to ask, hey, what's going on in this hood next to me? But, you know, if you do see like something that's unsupervised, that looks unsafe, it's totally reasonable to go find someone who knows what's going on with that setup and ask um, because (laughs) because they might be thanking you (laughs) for having caught something. So,
0: right. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll kind of get into where the story kind of goes next. back to Spark Science where we're talking to Dr. Kowalzik. and we're talking about solar thermal fuel and we're also talking really about how light interacts with matter and that's what he's doing for his research. So, we wanted to start out with the solar thermal fuels and what what does that mean? When I think of fuel, I think of my car, I think of putting the fuel in, it somehow, you know, it gets used up, it's burns, it, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. have that fuel anymore, right? right? So, when you're talking about these this fuel dealing with um, solar energy and being reusable, what do you mean by that?
1: Right. So this fuel, instead of being made of uh, these hydrocarbons, which are just these sort of complex molecules of carbon and hydrogen, um, when you burn that traditional fossil fuel, you're literally breaking up the bonds in that molecule and rearranging them together with oxygen molecules from the air to form carbon dioxide, CO2 as well as water H2O and so most of what should be coming out of your exhaust is carbon dioxide and H2O and there's going to be some other uh, minor products in there that we try to mitigate and minimize with your catalytic converter so that we're not um, dumping a lot of other pollutants into the atmosphere but you're mostly completely chemically converting your liquid hydrocarbon fuel into these two well this gas carbon dioxide and then water which is right. um, likely in a vapor form as it's being combusted and then condenses and comes out as, as a liquid. Right. So the, that's the conversion process that happens in a usual traditional fuel. In this solar thermal fuel concept, now instead of typical hydrocarbons, we have uh, customized molecules that are very good at twisting when they absorb energy from the sun. So one way to think about the fuel is uh, you can almost think about it it has a property that's more battery-like in the sense that if you take like a beaker of this stuff and you put it out in the sunlight, the molecules are going to adopt this strained or twisted state. And that's kind of like a charged state. There's no electrical charge here. It just means that they've gained energy.
0: They just have like potential energy. They've they've stored that energy. Yeah. It's like
1: lifting, pushing a ball up a hill.
0: Right. So you you have this fuel and instead of having combustion, instead of burning it, you're running it through.
1: The the goal is to have it release this heat energy, but you can get the ball rolling with an initial amount of of heat added. So what that does is if you think about um, the charged state of the molecule as as if it's like a ball on a hill that's trapped uh, at some higher elevation and you need to get it over some ridge for it to roll all the way down and release all the energy. So you can get it over the ridge with a little bit of gentle heating, and once it's over the ridge then it will just roll down to the bottom. So gently heating is one way to release that energy, Um, and that could be a self-propagating thing where some of the energy that's released by the first million molecules goes on to provide the heat for the next 10 million molecules to get them over the edge and release that energy.
0: So it has some like reservoir in there where it's like now this is our used fuel. We put it back in our giant vats in Arizona, and we do this all over mm-hmm. again.
1: That's right. Okay. That's right.
0: Well, this is this is super interesting. So, how far in this process has anyone come?
1: Yeah. So this this idea, the general concept of it, is definitely not new. The con okay. the the earliest ideations in the literature on this topic go back half a century. There are strained molecules that folks have recognized are potential candidates for storing chemical energy in in these strained bonds for a long time. Uh, A couple examples are uh, anthracene, which is a small, um, it's actually a a potential component of some uh, fossil fuel mixtures. It can be found in in crude oil. Um, It's a molecule that can dimerize. So that means that two individual molecules will kind of come and stick together when they absorb light. And that's a temporarily stable state that stores energy and could release that energy as heat later on. So um, that's an early concept of this kind of fuel. What we're trying to do, uh, again, our group is um, a theory and computation group. So at this stage, at least, we don't make these molecules in the lab. And if we got to the stage that we wanted to start making some of these in the lab, we would probably be uh, recruiting collaborators to help us with that. The main um, goal for us is to develop a screening protocol, so like a virtual high-throughput screening protocol where we can use the computer to try to predict what chemical changes to basic or sort of baseline solar thermal fuel structures could improve the various metrics that we're trying to improve to make a good solar thermal fuel. So for example, the energy density, the reverse isomerization barrier, that is, how long do they last?
0: You're explaining kind of this theoretical version of this problem, right? You're still kind of in the um, process of kind of thinking it through and figuring out what molecules will work. Now, mm-hmm. is there any other groups across you know the world that have ca- gone kind of further where they've actually produced a fuel?
1: So there are some... Um, uh... Some examples, um, specifically norbornadiene derivatives, have been studied for this purpose. And we're These actually... These are the molecules you were talking about before. Right, one the of the sets. One. Yeah, so, so right, norbornadiene itself absorbs in the UV, but you can perform chemical substitutions that redshift the absorption, so uh-huh. that m- makes them absorb in the visible. And so there's a, a particular um, group based in Denmark that has made significant progress in identifying some of these derivatives. And we actually rely pretty heavily on their experimental work as a benchmark for our bigger goal here is to have a scheme that allows us to identify alternative scaffolds for sol- solar thermal fuels. We have these this small number of photo switches that that exist as default scaffolds, and we're trying to expand that, that base from which to work.
0: So this fuel that has the UV redshifted um, fuel it, so that has that it does exist it has been used it's it's been in a some sort of device to get it going or.
1: Yes so there is another uh, group in the US that works on azobenzene derivatives this is another kind of uh, photo switch and they have done some uh, proof of concept creation of a, a solar thermal fuel that in thin film form and can be used for local heating so they can measure the um, the released heat energy and and uh, estimate the energy efficiency of that that full solar to heat release conversion process.
0: So when you say the thin film form, I'm I'm, I'm gonna keep on asking these questions because this is actually, you said this earlier, what do you mean by that? Because I, we kind of walked through how we would use a fuel, but how would mm-hmm. you use a thin film?
1: Right. So uh, in the case of a thin film, so you would deposit a, a thin film, so a, a, sort of several molecular layers of um, the solar thermal fuel in kind of a, a basically a solid state form on top of a surface, mm-hmm. right? And then you would place that film and the backing that it's on in, in light so that it can charge up. And then that... The film itself could be um, either heated or co-located with a catalyst to release um, the energy.
0: Now I think I want to take a break. <laughs> so now let's take a break. We've been talking about these fuels. When you say thin film, I think of kind of like it's almost like a battery, but not quite. We want to go from that idea to the solar energy we're used to, this idea of panels and and the other research you mm-hmm. do. Welcome back to Spark Science, where we're talking about uh, solar energy in various forms, uh, in fuel form, in thin film form, in in battery, in solar panel form with um, Dr. Kowalczyk. We're really talking about this idea of fuel versus battery, but in the break we were saying that it it is kind of... It's harder to pin down. It's not as... as black and white as as you would think.
1: Right, both words are useful for introducing the concept of how this solar thermal fuel works, but neither of them is sort of precisely accurate, at least based on sort of our usual context for the words like fuel and battery.
0: And I, we were talking in the break, which is really important, is that how this energy is being um, created and like how to do it efficiently and how someone might use it. That's
1: right. Yeah. yeah. It's a, the work that that we've been discussing has a has a strong application bend to it, but at the end of the day, it's fundamental physical chemistry research with right. a sort of computation and theory specialization. Yeah.
0: Can you tell us more about your other projects?
1: Sure. So. We're interested in organic materials broadly, and so these solar thermal fuels are one category of that. Um, the the other kind of photoactive or light absorbing organic materials we're interested in are the kinds that can absorb light and then use it to convert the light energy into electricity. So if you think about converting light energy into electricity, the first thing you may think of is a, a solar panel. right? So solar panels take sunlight and convert it into electricity. And most of the solar panels that uh, we see around us are made of silicon, and silicon is a great material for, for that. It's very uh, affordable. There's a lot of advantages to it, but it, it has some, some disadvantages too that other materials don't necessarily suffer from. So um, for example, uh, silicon solar panels are very brittle. So that requires particular you know limits, certain use cases, right? I can't wear a whole bunch of silicon solar panels on my clothing yeah. and and walk around like that i mean i could but it would be kind of awkward and inconvenient so
0: going to be like one use
1: right <laughs> so so being able to um design uh, or to identify alternative materials that uh could have Uh, improved mechanical properties like flexibility, um, improved uh, durability perhaps, improved recyclability to be safer, or even lower energy intensity to produce. So there's a variety of metrics by which we could develop materials that would be uh, more ideal materials for solar to electricity energy conversion. So
0: what do you mean by safer?
1: Yeah. So, well, uh, I mean, the the various components that go into um, the different kinds of solar cells that are available. Like the toxic so, components right, that you would so, need to. Right. Make it. So, for example, maybe not so much for silicon, but uh, of course, there's there's going to be safety hazards there as well. But but um, the one that really jumps to mind would be like um, SIGS solar cells. So, that it's a more expensive solar cell design, a multi junction um, solar cell. And some of the um, elements that go into those kinds of uh, solar cells are toxic. Toxic. So, okay. Um,
0: so if you need to get rid of it or even mm-hmm. to make it having that, you know, okay.
1: Right. So it would be nice if we could make solar cells out of organic materials, some of which can be toxic, but, you know, you can try to optimize to um, make them minimally environmentally harmful, mm-hmm. um, ideally more recyclable, um, and lower energy intensity to produce. That's okay. another another big one. The kinds of material that uh, my group is looking at right now in this area, a type of material called a covalent organic framework. Um, this is a relatively new class of organic materials, so they've only been around for about a decade. They are made of organic materials that uh, assemble and can be stacked uh, on top of one another, and they're porous, so they have pretty significant holes. But the thing that's interesting about them to us is that um, they have a structure that uh, in principle, could support a doubling of um, the light to electricity conversion, like an increase of 200% of the efficiency wow. through a process called singlet fission. Uh, the idea is that a single high-energy photon can result in two electrons moving through your external circuit wow. instead of one. Wow! So we're trying to see if we can um, optimize, uh, again, the same kind of strategy of uh, exploring chemical substitutions that could optimize that Light energy to electricity process.
0: So, all of that is super interesting, and it's actually really, I, I want to say, you, would you say that it's on the forefront of like a lot of the solar work? Um, because we do have that energy institute, right? So,
1: right. We do have the Institute for Energy Studies, which is, um, I would argue, laying a a new framework for what truly interdisciplinary energy education looks like. Um, And we do have um, pockets of research leadership in different corners, aspects of of, uh, energy science, technology, as well as policy. So we have a a significant uh, energy economics crew. But um, in terms of um, how the work that we do connects with the broader community. So there's a, there's connections at Western, um, but our, our direct collaborators on the singlet fission efforts um, and uh, photoactive covalent organic frameworks are actually international. So mm. um, we have a collaborator, uh, Japan Advanced Institute of Science and Technology uh, outside of Kanazawa, who synthesizes and prepares these uh, covalent organic framework materials. Um, they have a strong interest in electroactive covalent organic frameworks and we're interested in helping them add the photo part to it. So adding the light and using that light to drive the electrical activity that they're interested in studying in covalent organic frameworks.
0: That, that's awesome. All of your the stuff that you do is kind of, I want to I don't want to call it futuristic, but I think 10 years ago it would be called futuristic and maybe even by some people now. And when I think of futuristic kind of science, I think of sci-fi. Right. And I think uh-huh. of like how our science has been portrayed in popular culture. So can you think of in your mind kind of how your science has been portrayed in like books or TV or movies that has been really good or really done poorly?
1: It's interesting because I think using light for energy conversion, I think science fiction has uh, maybe it's just my, my lack of exposure because I, I'm, I'm not particularly a huge science fiction junkie. but. I don't really see those kinds of technologies exploited creatively in the ways that they could. If anything, I think the real life has kind of leapfrogged uh, I think <laughs> uh, what right. I've seen inside. I'm thinking uh, in particular about our like um, our new cell phone screens, right? They're, they're made of organic light-emitting diodes. That's basically an organic photovoltaic running in reverse, if you want to kind of condense it into a single sentence. Those concepts, you could imagine kind of extrapolating that to um, like organic or or bio-powered devices in a a sci-fi context. I mean, I'm sure things like this are out there, but um, I haven't seen it quite to the same extent that that you might expect. I mean, the the closest thing I can think of is like the... over-utilization of bioluminescence in Avatar, for example. Right. Like,
0: <laughs> right. I never saw that movie, which is crazy because I see everything. But um, no, I agree because it, it hasn't really been, I think, what has really been utilized in sci-fi has been like holograms, right? Mm-hmm. Manipulating light itself but not utilizing light.
1: For energy. Yeah. Right. Uh, surely this concept has been used in sci-fi. I'm not exactly sure where, but but the, the concept of a, a Dyson sphere, this idea that yes. you would sort of <laughs> surround, like a, as... As a species, needs to consume more and more or utilize more and more energy. Eventually, it runs out of resources available on its home planet, so it, it, it uh, manufactures, um, guess what, conventional silicon solar panels right. that it wraps around uh, its local star um, to provide energy, um, you know. And Star Trek has it's, gone it, wild with it. It's extremely imaginative. At the same time, it's there's something kind of vanilla about the the choice of the materials that are used, right? <laughs> but but materials, there's something kind of vanilla about materials in general that, that makes it difficult to to get more creative. I'm I'm sure there's yeah. probably folks who have uh, who who have. Well, that's proposed. what they had at the
0: time, right? Like mm-hmm. Richard Dyson, who proposed this, whose son was on the show because he's a writer. He lives in Bellingham here, if you if you didn't know that. Did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. And um, But yeah, I mean, that's what they had at the time, right? So it, it is a creative idea, but you're right. I mean, the materials, how the energy is actually taken from your local star and put in the Dyson Sphere and somehow converted into energy, even that itself is, like you're saying, a dated thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to some extent, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I, I is there anything that I have not asked that you'd like to share about your work or anything else that came to your mind
1: well you know if you're interested in pursuing um, you know a stem interest whether it's for career purposes or for your own personal um, enjoyment or whatever um, there's you know you may find inspiration or a determination to sort of keep going through things that don't seem directly related at all
0: some of those connections aren't going to be obvious until you break them down right but, um, but thank you. Thank you for talking to me. I've learned a lot about a lot of chemistry, which I've avoided my whole life. So thank, thank you <laughs> yeah, so thanks much. Thanks for
1: having me. <laughs> really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded at the Video Services Studio at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andrea Norden, and Tori Hailey. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious. An escape theme and abandoned bass by our guest today, Tim Qualzik.
1: Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, right, iodine, nitrate, activate. Right uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance, whistle, balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.